Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then turned, took a pound of very costly perfume of pure spikenard and anointed his feet, excuse me, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 days' wages and given to poor people? Now this he said, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief, and he had the money box, and he used to pilfer from it. Therefore Jesus said, Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not how always have me. The large crowds of the Jews therefore learned that he was there, and they came not because of Jesus only, but they, that they might see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. This is God's word. May God bless the reader and the hearers of his word. All right. Thank you, Steve. Yeah, Toys for Hope that we'll be partnering with, uh, that's uh, a distribution down in Logan Barrio, and there's over 2,000 kids who come apart to receive gifts every year for that. So it's kind of fun this year for us to, we in the past have partnered with Inner City um, LA, but that partnership is, we're not connected there as much anymore, so this one's local. So uh, that's what Toys for Hope, next three weeks. Um, and one other thing as we get started before we jump into the message, um, one of our missionaries, Dale and Becky Burke, are on their way currently, I think they're in the air right now, flying to Rwanda, um, where they're working uh, with some churches there and some pastors and, and training them up so they can uh, bring the gospel to more and more people over in Africa. And so I thought we'd take a moment and just pray for them as they go. They actually, on this trip, have uh, a bunch of teenagers with them uh, uh, as well. Uh, some are his, uh, their grandkids and some others. And so it's, uh, we want to pray for their safety as they go. So would you join me as we pray? God, we thank you so much. Uh, again, for this morning, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for who you are. And even a Thanksgiving week where uh, many will be seeing family, uh, which we've already mentioned sometimes brings uh, complexity and difficulty, and it brings joy. It brings all of those things. Um, we thank you that you're with us through those moments. And uh, we pray especially right now for uh, Dale and Becky and their team as they travel to Rwanda, uh, ask blessings over their work, their safety. And God, we pray that everything they do will help advance uh, your kingdom and more and more may know you. Um, so we thank you for them. Ask, lift them up to you now as one church. In your name, amen. Well, thank you for being here this morning. Um, as we jump back into the book of John, uh, as we mentioned, starting next week, uh, we're going to have our Advent series, and our, this year our theme for that is called The Blank That Stole Christmas, and uh, no, nothing can steal Christmas, and nothing can take the message away, but what we're going to explore is actually the theology behind and even the biblical history of why did Christmas happen in the first place, and what are the things that w tried to kind of get in the way of our experience 
experiencing the joy and the whole meaning for why God came down. So that's starting next week. And yes, it's a little bit playful as we use a, a Grinch theme, which I think is one of the better Christmas movies out there. Uh, Jim Carrey's Grinch. It's right up there with Die Hard as some of the best Christmas movies. So... Um, Right there. But um, anyway, as we get started here today, we are in the book of John, uh, chapter 12. As we jump into this story, uh, our teaching team was talking about it this week, and I was recalling uh, a story written by C.S. Lewis called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I, I didn't read a lot of books growing up. Uh, I didn't read this book until I was actually in seminary. So I'd already graduated from college, and I was reading Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. I didn't know what it was about. I just knew it was written by C.S. Lewis, and as a Christian, I was supposed to read his books. So, uh, and, so, and I heard it was good, so I started reading this book. And many of you know the story, but there's a character named Aslan. It's an allegory for Christ, and he's this lion, and he's this uh, force of good, and there's the white witch who represents Satan, and there's a scene towards the climax of the story where there's this kid who you're not supposed to like when you read the books, and I didn't like him the first time I read Edmund. Yeah, and he is, the witch had taken him, and Aslan was giving his life for Edmund. Now, the first time I read this book, I kid you not, I'm in seminary, and I'm reading it, and I was like, I don't like Edmund. He's not likable, the way he writes it. And it got to the point where Aslan was going to exchange his life for Edmund, and I was mad. I was like, no! you can't do that? Are you kidding me? And, and I was like caught up in the moment. And then I, you know, as a intelligent seminary student, grad school, learning about, you know, theology, I was like, oh, <laughs> we are Edmund. We're the ones who Jesus. So yes, I told you, a little slow. You should see my SAT scores. Anyway, but so at that moment, uh, you see where Aslan gives his life for Edmund, but he knew that the story was bigger than that. And there's a scene, and I actually like the Disney version of the way they show this scene when Aslan is killed and all of these kind of evil, dark creatures are celebrating. And you can sense the evil and the darkness of that moment. And then, of course, the story goes on where Aslan rises from the dead. And C.S. Lewis describes it as this deeper magic. He said it's a deeper magic that the witch did not know about or didn't understand. And, and in that, it was what we thought was actually the death of Aslan actually was the death of death and sin itself, that the witch lost her hold on everything. And the allegory is, of course, from Scripture, and where God comes in the form of Jesus, and at this moment where it seems that perhaps what's going to happen is that Jesus loses and evil wins, but in the economy of God, things are often upside down. They're different than what we would expect. And so in that moment where Christ gives his life, he's actually anointed to something bigger, and there's this win. And so what you're expecting from our worldview happens almost the opposite. It's like an ironic kingdom. What you would expect is the exact opposite. And as we look at the story today, the story of maybe familiar to you where Jesus's feet are anointed by someone and there's a celebration, we're going to see in there there's something greater going on. There's this, quote, deeper magic in God's upside-down kingdom where we are, what you see is actually the opposite of what is going on. And so I want to invite you to look back in John chapter 12 with me. And we are going to walk through this story and then 
find what it means for us today. And we're actually going to start in verse 55 of chapter 11, just to get a little more context. It says this, Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem from the country prior to the Passover in order to purify themselves. And they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple area, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he was to report it so that they might arrest Jesus. Chapter 12, Therefore, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus raised from the dead. So here's the scene. One of the things that we always invite you to do when we teach scripture here on Sunday morning is we want to also look into the scripture in a way that so you can read it on your own and know what kind of questions to ask. So we always tell you this and want to remind you when you see something like a date or a location, we want to ask why, why do we need to know that? So Passover is near and they're in a, t- a village of Bethany. Bethany is just just outside of Jerusalem, on basically behind the Mount of Olives, where Jesus would come just a week later down, uh, or a couple days later, on what we call the triumphant entry, where he walks on Palm Sunday down into Jerusalem. So it's on kind of the top of this hill um, outside of Jerusalem. Passover was one of the uh, pilgrimage feasts for the Jews. So it's one where many would go to celebrate in Jerusalem. And Passover was a reminder of the time when the Israelites were led from slavery in Egypt uh, out of slavery into the wilderness. And the story goes they were to take a pure, spotless lamb, sacrifice that lamb, take the blood of the lamb, and put it on their doorpost. And the angel of the Lord would pass over their houses and preserve their lives. And as often is the case throughout the Old Testament, throughout Scripture, is the story is written to point to something greater. God is at work in history from the beginning, telling a story that is very intentional, pointing to Jesus and our ultimate redemption. And things that happen in Scripture are happen as symbols pointing us, signposts pointing us to Jesus. That is our ultimate and forever answer to things like slavery or slavery of sin that keeps us in bondage. So Passover becomes a symbol of what God does in our lives spiritually. Now, uh, this comes from Exodus chapter 12. Right here you can see on the screen where they were told, it says, when you enter the land, the Lord will give you as he promised. Observe this ceremony called Passover. When your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? You tell them it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt. So this is what they're celebrating, and the symbolism will become very strong as we jump back into the book of John over the next uh, few chapters as Jesus is the fulfillment, the sign of a pure spotless lamb being killed and the blood covering the houses becomes a symbol for what Jesus does for us spiritually as the pure spotless lamb who covers us so God passes over preserving life and giving us life. And so that is what people are celebrating and already thinking about. And they know that uh, what, what's about to happen, there's rumors that Jesus is what is called their Messiah. Messiah means anointed one, who they believed was going to give them some sort of deliverance, some sort of set them free. And so this is kind of the context. Now, Jesus goes to the house where Lazarus was. Last week, we looked at the story where Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. Now they're having a feast in this house in Jesus' honor. Why is it in his honor? 
Because he just raised their brother from the dead. Good reason, right? Hey, we want to do something nice for you. What, what can that be? And he says, I like pasta. So they, get, they decide they're going to do a dinner for him. So in, in his honor. And now at this dinner, you have, they're reclining at the table. It says Lazarus was there reclining as well. And Mary, oh, this is a sister of Lazarus, breaks open this perfume and anoints the feet of Jesus. Now, just to help you understand that a little bit, if you're just thinking of our context, it's kind of awkward, is it? It feels awkward that, okay, how is she anointing his feet? If we understand first century in the Greco-Roman world, how they would dine is they would recline laying down on one side. And so you would lean over and your feet would actually not be under the table, but they would be behind the person next to you, um, kind of behind them. So your feet would be out of the way which is nice in the ancient world because you're eating and your feet didn't always smell like right. So uh, that's kind of what's going on. This also sets the scene for those of you, if you're familiar with scripture on the Last Supper, where you hear of John is reclining on the chest of Jesus. That sounds, Da Vinci has Jesus sitting like this and John just laying on his chest. It's awkward. It's like, why is he doing that? Well, it isn't awkward if you're all reclining to the person next to you. So John would be reclining here. And uh, Jesus, probably in that dinner, is reclining on Judas, uh, which that's for another sermon. But we have actually an image. This, uh, this image was a painting from this night. Um, and uh, this is just an artist depiction, obviously. But this gives you a little bit of an idea of what it would look like, what they mean by reclining. So now, with this picture in mind, you can see now if someone's going to anoint your feet, it's a little less awkward, isn't it? It's, she's not under the table and they're going like, who is that, you know, under the table? What's going on here? It's actually, he's reclining and there's probably other people in the room and she's next to Jesus uh, where we have seen her before in scripture listening to his teaching. Here she's at his feet and anoints him uh, with this oil. We find also this same story talked about in uh, Matthew chapter 26, in Mark chapter 14, and in Luke chapter 7. So we see this story in three different, or all four gospels. Just for those of you who like to dive a little deeper, the context or, or the description is slightly different. In two of them, they have uh, Jesus, is, Mary is anointing his head as well. So it, and John could very well be that she anointed his head with this oil and then also his feet. Um, in Luke chapter 7, this again, for those of you who like to kind of look at a little deeper nuance, it's a little different. Luke chapter 7 doesn't mention Mary. It calls her a sinner. Just says there's a sinful woman. Um, and also the chronology of ch Luke chapter 7 is a little different than this one. Most scholars would agree it's still the same story. Um, We'll get back to that in just a little bit about Mary's response there. So that's the picture of what's happening. Let's go back into the text. Chapter, I mean, sorry, verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, the one who intended to betray Jesus, he said, why is this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the proceeds given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and he kept the money box, and he used to steal from what was put into it. So a couple things here. He says, why didn't we sell this for 300 denarii? Uh, 300 denarii, one denarii is like a day's wage in their time. So he's saying for 300 days wages. Um, was it the actual price of this? We don't know if it's the actual price, or he's, what he is indicating is we do know that this 
pure nard. I don't like that word nard, but um, it's a pine nard. It's from northern India, and it's very expensive spice and uh, used in, in perfumes and lotions and things like that. Extremely expensive. She has about a pint of it, so if you can think of how much. Pours it out. We know it's very expensive. He might have just been saying, well, we could sell it. This would be like a year's worth of wages to sell it. It may have had that much value. Maybe not. But the point is this. It was super, super, super expensive. And it felt very wasteful in her mind. So he's, or in, in his mind. And so he said, we should have sold that and give it to the poor. I love the note that John has. Not that he cared about the poor, but he was a thief. Okay, the disciples, everyone around there didn't know this detail at the time. As John writes later, he's like, oh, you know what, Judas? We found out the money box was missing a little bit of money. The guy was shady from the beginning. So it's not like Judas got to carry around the money box and everyone knew he was a thief. Okay, so just so you know, it's not like they're going, oh, yeah, give the thief the money box again. So um, it's just later on he's saying, oh, Judas did not care about the poor. We've learned later more about his heart. So, verse 7, Jesus says this, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial, for you will always have the poor with me, but you will not always have me. So here's something interesting in Scripture is what Mary is currently doing, Jesus says, let her do it because she has this oil for my burial. Now, I don't think Mary was sacrificing or doing this to prepare Jesus for burial I don't think she knew that he was about to give his life within the week when she did it. In fact, we know Jesus constantly told his disciples, I will have to give my life. I am going away. I am going to hand my life over. It's going to be destroyed. He probably talked about Isaiah 53 that talks about the suffering servant, which is the Messiah, and says, through his life, but he will bear the sins of many, and by his wounds we are healed. Like, Jesus probably had this conversation with the disciples, and they still looked at him and were like, I don't get it. I don't get it. In fact, Jesus, or Peter, the very night Jesus was betrayed, says, I don't care. Jesus says, I'm going to go away. I'm giving my life for you. And Peter says, no way. Over my dead body, I'm not going to let that happen. And Jesus is just like, oh, P Peter, seriously, okay. They couldn't get it. So Mary is anointing Jesus, but she has a different intention, which we'll get to in a moment. But Jesus says, she's doing this for my burial. So he's, again, here's a sign pointing to something greater. Now, Jesus says something that sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? Jesus says, well, why don't we give that money to the poor? And Jesus says, oh, you'll always have the poor with you. You won't always have me. Does that sound a little selfish to anyone? Just like, what? whoa, Jesus, come on, man, what you doing? Well, he's probably quoting, well, he is quoting a scripture, and often what Jesus does is he quotes verses that gives us greater context. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 15, and in Deuteronomy chapter 15, it says this, give generously to the poor and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of the Lord your God, he will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. So interesting that Jesus is quoting this and saying you're always, there will always be poor people around. So what he's really saying is this. Whether you save this 300 denarii and you give it to the poor or you spend it all on me right now, it does not release you from the obligation as my people to care for the poor. 
So whether you have great means and a lot of money or a little money, as long as the poor are in the land, as my people, you are to care for them. So feel free to let her lavishly pour out her love on me now, and you still have an obligation to care for the poor. In other words, in Judas's mind, it was, well, now we can't help the poor because we spent all this money And Jesus is saying, oh no, you can, you'll find a way, and you'll do it without grudgingly if you are my people. So it makes sense? So he's he's not against the poor, he's actually saying, no, this is, as people of God, we will always care for the poor. However, with whatever means you have. All right, go back in verse nine. So then a large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, and they came not on account of Jesus only, but so that they might also see Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead. Don't you think you'd want to see him too? If you heard of someone who was dead for a few days and rose from the dead, and he was in your town, wouldn't you be like, oh, Lazarus is hanging out down, you know, he's over at whatever, having having lunch at Chick-fil-A. It's Christian. So he's over there, and so let's go check it out. Let's go see him. Wouldn't you want to see him? And wouldn't you want to talk to him? Be like, Lazarus, hey, come here. Yeah. So what's it really like? You know, dying. <laughs> Wouldn't you want to know that? That's the one thing we can't know. Lazarus knows. I, I guarantee you people in there are like, hey, Jesus is here, but Lazarus, what was that like? What was it like when you were already dead, maybe in the presence of Jesus, or in the presence of God the Father, and Jesus said, hey, come back. Do you think Lazarus is like, hold on, hold on. I'm in eternity right now. Why am I coming back there? Jesus, don't raise me. What are you doing? (laughs) They asked him, or they wanted to see him. So on account of Jesus and on account of Lazarus, the crowds were there. But the chief priests, so then it goes on, verse 10, but the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Nice little detail, huh? So as we look at this story, what I want to do now is go back and just point out a few little things that, again, in the economy of God, how things that you expect one thing, it's the opposite. I call it the ironic kingdom that we're looking at here. And we're going to look at a few characters from the story. And we want to ask a few questions about ourselves in each of those. So the first character now we want to look at that we understand the story is this. It's Jesus. What, what do we see about him? Jesus is in this story, and Mary comes, and she an, does some sort of, she anoints him. And what that meant, usually in the ancient world, is anointing was used for someone who is maybe rising to a level of uh, some sort of office. It could be the office of a king. It could be the office of a prophet. Uh, it was some sort of signi- significance of you are above, you are elevated, and we're anointing you into that position. I believe Mary was anointing Jesus out of her great love for him as thanks for him, but also believing that he is the Messiah who is coming for them. We learned in chapter 11, they actually say, we have come to believe that you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, which actually means anointed one in Greek. So she's anointing him for a position of leadership. And rightfully so. But in Jesus' so he's, he's anointed as some sort of king, Messiah, but in Jesus' world, it's not what you'd expect. So here we see Jesus is anointed as king, but he's also anointed as a servant. 
He's there to serve, not to be served. What you would expect from one to be anointed would, he is the one now on whom everyone will serve, but he is about to be the one who will serve all of humanity. Philippians chapter 2, Paul is writing and he says, Jesus became obedient to death, even death on the cross, humbling himself, making himself a form of a servant. And because of that, God the Father exalted him and gave him the name above all names. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. So in God's kingdom, where you think you're anointing him to be the king, the Messiah that we understand, he's being anointed to be a servant. And as a servant, that is actually his way of becoming king. God's kingdom often flips things around. Mary is anointing him, and Jesus sees something greater in mind. We learned, uh, Paul writes about this in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, talks about how in God's kingdom, how it's often turned around, says this, to the Jews, uh, they ask for signs, and all through the book of John, they keep saying, what sign do you want to perform that we can believe who you are? So they ask for signs. Greeks search for wisdom, meaning logic, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, this is a stumbling block. In other words, if, they, if he's their Messiah, but he's about to give his life, that is a stumbling block if you're looking for signs, right? To the Gentiles or to the G- Greeks, it's foolishness. It doesn't make sense. Why would God do that? If this is God, why would he give his life up? That doesn't make sense. But to those who are in Christ, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than mankind, and the weakness of God is stronger than mankind. Once again, God's economy, what you expect, is different than what you get, and it's better every time. And so we see that Jesus being anointed as as king is actually going to become king through being a servant. Let's look at the next character in the story. It's Martha. We learn about Martha in a few places in Scripture. In this one, we see her, she's serving. She's serving at the meal. We first learned about her in Luke chapter uh, 12. And in Luke chapter 12, we see Martha, or sorry, uh, Luke chapter 10, we see Martha. And they're at another dinner party and, or at the house. And what is Martha doing? She's serving. And Mary, her sister, is sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning from him. And Martha goes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, can you tell my sister to get off her, her uh, I can't say it here, so to get up and actually do something? <laughs> to serve? Can you tell, look at, I'm working hard, she's doing nothing. And Jesus says, Martha, chill. It's okay. Don't be so anxious about everything. Mary's spending time with me, which is a good thing. That's what we get. She kind of gets rebuked, but maybe not for serving, but for kind of judging her sister. The next time we see Martha is in John chapter 11, last week. Lazarus is dead. Jesus shows up. There's already mourning. There's, there's all these party pl- or, uh, funeral plans happening. Martha comes out and meets Jesus, and she is the event planner. She comes out and says, Jesus, okay, if you would have been here earlier, First of all, we wouldn't have to plan this whole memorial thing if you would have gotten here a little bit earlier. But now that you're here, here's what's going on. And and she comes out and meets him and starts giving the details of what needs to happen. And this guy has the appetizers and, you know, all of whatever we have going on. You're going to get up and speak from this point. I don't know how it went. But she gets up. She is a detail person. She's being busy. Even when we see her brother, 
who had just died. He's raised from the dead, and now this story. They're celebrating Jesus, and Martha is serving again. And Mary is not serving again. All of you Marthas out there are like, seriously, Mary, do something, <laughs> right? But you know what's cool about this? In this story, which sounds a lot like the other ones, Martha isn't complaining about Mary. She's not going to Jesus and say, seriously, again? Jesus isn't condemning Martha either. Jesus is letting Martha be Martha. Jesus is letting Martha serve because in her wheelhouse of who she is, she is someone who she serves. She's a detail person. She's a get-stuff-done kind of person, and she's not being condemned for it at all. And we find that Martha, her expression, her way of, of, of giving, is I think as she pours herself out, she's being filled up. Some of you can probably relate to that. As she pours out, she is being filled up time and again. We learned in chapter 11, she came out and said, I have come to believe that you are the Christ. But she's still a servant. She's still busy. She's still working. Take any of your personality tests. You know which one she is. She is that one. Getting things done. And it's okay. Because she has found that as she pours out, she is being filled up with, and her faith is growing in who Jesus is. I've come to believe you're the Christ. Question for you on this is, how are you uniquely, how are you uniquely created to love and serve Jesus? And one thing I think Mary learned, or Martha learned was who she is and who Mary is is okay. Because the response of worship and a service to Jesus looked different. But how are you, unique, you uniquely created to love and serve Jesus? Do you struggle with comparing yourself to other people who have different gifts? Do you think, well, I'm just, I'm a servant. I like to get things done. I'm a detailed person, but I could never be up front. I could never memorize scripture. I could never teach, so my gifts are down here. No. Martha's showing us this beautiful principle. As we pour out, we get filled up in your unique gifting. And it's beautiful. Her love was expressed through her service. Let's look at the next character, Mary. So Mary here is doing something totally different. She takes this perfume, she breaks it. Um, someone, we were talking, was she wealthy? We believe that they probably were a very wealthy family. Um, takes this perfume, probably anoints the head of Jesus first, and then is anointing his feet and wiping his feet with her hair. Some scholars would say that's because she didn't want to actually touch her, her hands to her feet, so she uses her hair to wipe it off. This is a humiliating kind of scene, this is a scene where she is there, and it would be embarrassing. In fact, in the account in Luke, they said, does Jesus not know who she is and what she's doing? This just seems like, look at her. Look at this woman who's letting her hair down and wiping it on Jesus' feet. This is scandalous. What kind of woman is this that would do that? But Mary, in her great love, as she pours out this extravagant gift, this extravagant, extravagant way of expressing her worship of Jesus, we find something about Mary here. See, in this, Mary is seen by Jesus 
so she didn't care if she, how or if she was seen by others. She, was, she knew she was seen by Jesus. He saw her. He looked through all of everything and connected with her. She felt so seen, so known by him, that to her, she didn't care about who was around. Think of how Jesus, it once says, if you're not ashamed about, uh, of me in front of others, I'm not, I will not be ashamed of you before the Father. And I think this beautiful picture of Mary just saying, I don't care what other people are saying. I'm going to pour out my love, my worship to my Jesus right now. She felt so seen that she didn't care if she was seen by other people. It recalls a story from the Old Testament. There's King David when he's taking the covenant, uh, this Ark of the Covenant, back into Jerusalem after it had been taken away, and they are sacrificing all these animals. And he was so worshipful, so excited about bringing the Ark of the Covenant back that he started dancing. And according to his wife, he was like, embarrassing himself because at the end of the day he gets to his house and his wife looked at him and said well my my haven't you dig, uh, dignified yourself today and others brother we all know you can't dance and you've been dancing in front of the whole kingdom and you look like a fool you look crazy dancing before the lord what is wrong with you and David responds and says this, I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. He wasn't saying that I'm gonna embarrass myself. He's saying my worship before God is so unfettered that I don't care if I'm more humiliated because this isn't about you or impressing you or impressing the neighborhood. It's about me worshiping and expressing my extravagant love towards God. That's what Mary is doing. Do you ever feel like expressing your gratitude towards God? You're kind of afraid to do that? I sit in front so often if there's a song or worship or something, and, you know, I've learned, I, I, I kind of first became a Christian and had kind of more hand-raising. My friends, they did that, so I'll do that sometimes. Sometimes that's, you know, I have non-Christian friends would see people raising their hands in worship, and they'd say, oh, yeah, you, you have a question? What is, so, um, so, I would kind of be embarrassed to do it sometimes. And I remember hanging out with some other friends who are pastors in this area, and we were at you know, these gatherings of, of other pastors and worship starts. And we're in a room of all trained men, men and women of the cloth. You know, we should know, we shouldn't be embarrassed, but worship starts and you're still kind of like a little bit reserved. But I have a few friends who they get there in the first, like the first strum, and they're like, all right, Lord, I'm here. And I'm always so impressed by that because that unfettered expression of their worship before God is encouraging to me. Now for you, it, I'm not saying that's the only way to worship, but for them, it's just such an encouragement. Like, why, what am I holding back for? What am I afraid of? For you, how can you express, question, how can you express your gratitude towards God? What is a sacrifice of worship that you can give? That's a question for you. Okay, next person we're going to look at. Judas. Here's an interesting one. I'm just going to touch on him really quick. God's upside-down kingdom. Look at Judas. This is weird. He gave of himself to get for himself. Now, I don't think this is a good thing, by the way, but have you ever wondered, our teaching team was talking about this, and I never thought about it. He served Jesus for like three or three and a half years. That's a lot of your life. 
to be on the street, to be walking with him, to be basically just hanging out with Jesus for what? We knew all along he was taking from the money, so maybe he was like, I'm going to pay myself a little bit here and there, but he was giving of himself to get for himself. It's kind of, he's an interesting character. Now, we know that God was stirring and creating events that needed to happen, but here's what Judas was doing. He is treating his relationship with Jesus like a transaction. Where are the areas of your life where you struggle with treating God as a transactional relationship? God, I'll show up to worship on Sunday morning as long as you show up at my interview tomorrow. God, I'll show up and I'll, I'll give to the offering as long as you show up and you give to my rent. L- Lord, I will give, but what, are you gonna, what do I going to get for it? And it's in subtle ways that we can treat God as a transactional relationship. That's what Judas was doing. Something for us to consider. Now, I do believe that there's something unique about our life of faith and service that somehow, through our life of giving to the Lord, that somehow we receive. It's not always, so if ever church teaches you that if you give money in the offering bucket, you'll get more back, that's not correct teaching. But I do believe if you give, you actually learned more contentment. And you might just have less. In fact, mathematically, you probably will. <laughs> but somehow, God does bless you in that way, but it's different than what we might expect. I do believe that God gives back, but that's not why we give. Judas's relationship with Jesus was about a transaction. We want to look at that in our own lives. Last one. The last person we want to look at is Lazarus. Lazarus is great. Here's, here's Lazarus in this story. Here's what he did. Lazarus... He did nothing, and he accomplished a lot. What did Lazarus do? He died. And when he was dead, Jesus rose him from the dead. He didn't do, all he did is Jesus said, Lazarus, come out of there. And he's like, really? Okay. And came out. That's what he did. He came forward. And many of the Jews started believing because of the work that God did in Lazarus' life. Here's a beautiful principle of faith. The principle is this. That it's God's work in your life that is a testimony to his power to others. It's not your ability to be perfect every day. It's not your ability to serve God in in some powerful way. It's not your ability to make yourself right in the eyes of others. It's God's work in you that actually is the testimony about who he is. And that's good news, would you agree? Because we're not always a very good testimony about God's work on our own. But the power of God in us is what's transformational. And so in this story, we see that Lazarus, who did nothing, he accomplished much. As God worked in and through him. In your life and in my life, the work of God in display, on display in you is what makes a difference. When the world looks at you and sees someone who has confidence and hope and peace in times of turmoil and trouble, it doesn't come because somehow we're more confident than others. It's because we've learned to trust Jesus, amen? That becomes a testimony. That we can be people of hope in a world that feels hopeless, 
When we look at chaos, yet those of us in Christ should be people of hope, that should be a testimony to others of the power of God on display in us. Not us. It's God's work through us. And so this story reminds us that all along it's about our anointed servant king, Jesus. And all we can do is sit at his feet and express our gratitude, our love. Sometimes it's through service, sometimes it's through whatever, but it's nothing that we have to give comes from us, it's from him. And so as we end our time, we're actually going to transition to a time of uh, communion. And for us, communion, we have crackers and we have the juice, and it represents the cracker, the bread is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's his body that was broken for us. And we take it to remember and to believe that he was a real person, God in flesh, who walked among us, who really did die a death, who really did rise for you and for me. And we take the juice. It's a symbol of the covenant made in his blood. What that means is this, that God made a promise that we cannot break. It's not on us. It's on him. So all of our faith, all of our unfaithfulness, all of our failures, all of that cannot undo the promise that God has made to us. So we're going to invite you during these songs. Would you get up at your own pace? You can go by yourself. You can go with your family, life group. Go to the tables. Take the bread and the juice. And you can return to your seat. You can spread out around the room. Take a moment to pray and thank Jesus for his sacrifice made for you and for me. Thank him for the blood that was shed and the promise that he will never break. Take that at your own pace. Come back and we'll end our time with worship. And uh, so let me pray for you. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your life poured out for us that actually then allows us to pour out ourselves back to you. And Lord, sometimes we just need to sit at your feet. Sometimes it's, we just marvel at your great love and your great work. So Lord, as we take our, this time of communion, would you remind us that, of your realness? Would you remind us of what you've accomplished on the cross? We thank you. We give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. So at your own pace, feel free to go to one of the tables, take communion, and then join us in worship.